Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show. And this time, our theme is I Got You. Stories about the times we have each other's backs, even or especially when it's not expected or easy. Our first story comes from Lydia Caesar. Lydia told this at the Sheldon Concert Hall and Art Galleries, where we partnered with the University of Missouri, St. Louis. A quick note, this story does deal with some mature themes. Here's Lydia Caesar, live at the mall. So I currently live in St. Louis, but I'm born and raised in Hollis, Queens, New York. Ow, New York in a house. I am a church girl in every word, every sense, okay? I'm what they call a PK. This is an acronym for preacher's kid. My grandfather founded a church, a storefront with a handful of members. And by the time my father grew up, the church grew as well by the thousands. My dad took over the ministry, and we have international churches, branches. My dad's sermons were picked up by a radio broadcast that's heard by the masses. So I'm basically saying all of this to say that my dad is kind of a big deal in the church community. I got used to being called Pastor Caesar's daughter as I was a little girl growing up, and I'm a Leo. So the attention that came from being a part of the first family it was okay, I didn't mind it so much, but at the same time, this fishbowl life that we lived in, it had a lot of pressure. I was the second born of four kids. My dad is a total family man, and we went to church every Sunday, as you would expect, religiously, no pun intended. <laughs> we went to Sunday school, junior church, Friday night youth services. We even went to Christian summer camps. And to be honest, I loved it. I would not change the way I was raised for anything in this world. And I actually began to love God for myself. I, I developed my own faith, not because my parents forced it on me. So much so that by the time I turned 16, there was a group in my church called Purity with a Purpose. And I joined this group. We were young girls who said we were going to save ourselves from marriage. We were not going to have sex until we met our husband, the man God had for us. We, went to, we had a ceremony where we got these 14-carat gold rings. I still have mine on today. It had... Uh, purpose engraved on the inside and this was this was all me nobody said you must do this but even though I was you know I had my own faith growing up I was this sort of wild child my mom says that when I was small I wasn't even three she said she went out and bought a book called the strong-willed child <laughs> like she needed like a manual for me she said I was so different from my older sister my older sister was was mild-tempered and she didn't give them any problems but I questioned everything. I had a rebuttal for everything. For example, my sister was not allowed to go to her prom. My parents said it was a party and there was gonna be secular music and dancing and that is what they do in the world. And we are not, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're set apart. So partying is not what believers do. And she said, okay, and she didn't go. And I was watching. I was going to my prom. And I had a perfect lawyer-like Christian response as to why I should be allowed to go when my prom came around. I said, Mom and Dad, if we look at the text, Jesus' first miracle in the Bible took place at a party. <laughs> and the party was popping because they ran out of alcohol. And our Lord and Savior turned the water into wine. So how can parties be off the table? By the time I was done, we were prom dress shopping. And this is the kind of Christian that I am, that I was, that I've always been. A free thinker. And um, even the way I dress, I, 
always wore bright, bold colors. I wore clothes that fit my curves, and I was a sh like a, a show-off at church. And this didn't always go over well with people. They judged me a lot. I'm, I'm the preacher's kid, and I just wasn't supposed to be that way. But, okay, also, there was these women, these holy holy roller women. I mean, they were so holy and I felt especially judged by them. I mean, they wore turtlenecks up to here. They wore dresses down to their ankles. I was never going to be like them. It was a tall order of holiness that I felt like I was never going to be. I actually avoided these women, but sometimes I'd see them in church. And one lady, whenever she'd see me, she would hug me. And while hugging me, she would rub on my thigh to see if I had on a slip. And if I didn't, she would chastise me. I mean, make me feel like I was going to hell for not wearing an undergarment. Another woman told me that my hopes and dreams, I wanted to entertain and sing. She told me that that was of the world and that a woman of God has no place entertaining. I was supposed to be in the pulpit spreading God's word. And they, I just felt like I wasn't free to be who I wanted to be just because I'm a PK. And I hated that feeling. But what helped me was my dad. He had this saying he would say that our faith is not so much about religion and rules and dogma, but it's about a relationship with God. And that relationships are flawed, just like we are. And I loved that. And that helped me make it through the times when people in my church made me feel like I wasn't so much a part of the church family. So by the time I turned 18, I started college. And I didn't go away. I stayed home. And while in school, I met this guy. And we fell in love and we started having sex. Now sex was complicated for me because I liked it. <laughs> but at the same time, it came with this guilt. I had made a covenant and I knew that I was not supposed to be having sex before marriage, but it was very, very hard to stop. So it was like a back and forth thing. And um, one day I remember feeling this like weird, keen sense of smell and this insane nauseousness. And I went and got a pregnancy test and it turns out that I was pregnant. Now this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. I fell into a deep, deep depression. I didn't even know what depression was until this time in my life. And um, I'm a preacher's daughter. Getting pregnant and not being married is a mess. And I said to myself, Lydia, this is gonna be the hardest thing that you have ever had to deal with. I was a freshman. I had the rest of my life ahead of me. I had these huge dreams. I was not ready to be a mom or to deal with all of that, just all of the mess that was gonna come along with it. And even with all of this weight on my back, it felt like the world was literally on my back. The thing that was the hardest for me was how am I gonna tell my dad? How am I gonna tell my mom and my church? I decided to tell my mom first. She and I are really close. And I also knew that even though she'd be disappointed, that uh, she was going to be the most level-headed about it. So I told her, and it, it went how I expected. And then it was time to tell my dad, and I knew that that was not going to go the same way. But I called my boyfriend and said, look, we have to do this together. So we told our parents that we wanted to sit down and have a meeting with them. So we met in our house, and I'm on the couch with my boyfriend. My mom's on the other couch. My dad's on the stairs. My mom's pretending that she doesn't know. <laughs> Shout out to moms because they keep their daughter's secrets. <laughs> I think my dad just kind of thought that maybe we were going to get engaged, but that wasn't it. And my boyfriend is the one who actually said it. He said, Bishop Caesar, by now my dad is a bishop, so he's just climbing. He said, um, I'm sorry, but Lydia's pregnant. And it was silent. My dad didn't say anything for at least 20 seconds. And when he opened his mouth, he says, how could you do this to me? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I could totally understand why he said that. We live in a fishbowl. My dad, my family is the standard. People look to us to be perfection, to not break the rules. And, and, and if anybody, if anybody in the Caesar family was gonna screw it up, it was gonna be me. And I can just imagine, I could see it unfolding. I could see myself walking in church Sunday after Sunday, my belly growing. I'm just wearing the shame. And I could see those holy roller women being like, see, that's why you shouldn't have been wearing them outfits or whatever they were going to say. I just could see it unfolding. And I said to myself, okay, you're in the choir and you're in the acting ministry. And at that time in my church, if you commit a sin that people can see, 
a visible sin. I mean, because we all sin behind closed doors, but if you got pregnant or had an affair or something like that, you had to sit down from your ministry during that season. You couldn't minister while in your sin. And I knew that I was going to be in church, but not ministering. I wasn't going to be acting, and, and I was going to be getting big, and people were going to be asking and buzzing and gossiping, and it was going to be like this domino effect of my congregation finding out. And I just, that was like a nightmare to me. So I made a decision that I wanted to announce my pregnancy to the entire congregation. I told my parents that this is what I wanted to do. And my dad, he was, he was kind of indifferent at this point. He really just wanted everything to go smoothly. But my mom loved this idea of me being able to control the narrative myself. So she and I wrote this speech. And the Sunday had come where it was time for me to go to church and, and tell this to the congregation. And that Sunday I walked into the church. I mean, this is my church. I know these people. I've been in that pulpit a million times, singing and speaking and ministering. But this day, I felt like an outsider. I was so nervous. The whole service, I just sat there looking at this paper. <sighs> then my dad finished his word and he says, at this time my daughter Lydia has something that she'd like to say to the congregation. And I stood up. I was too scared to walk even up on the pulpit. I just stood in front of the church. And I had on this burgundy skirt and a white blouse that I got out of my mom's closet. It was way big. I did not want to be judged. And I stood there and I looked out, 500 faces looking back at me, people who, who I knew they watched me grow from a girl to the young woman that I was. And I started to read and basically what I said was that I made a mistake. I started having sex and I got pregnant and that I'd let myself down, I'd let God down, and I had let my family down. And that God, my family, they forgave me, and I asked for my congregation to forgive me as well. And I also asked them that this is gonna be a hard time for me, so please help build me up, not tear me down during this time in my life. And my face was down and I was just looking at the paper, and when I lifted it up, one by one I just see people start standing up. Next thing you know, the whole church is on their feet and everybody's clapping and people are crying and I'm crying and I'm like, oh my God, why are they clapping? I didn't know, like, I didn't know what to expect, but, I, but they were supporting me. And it was over and I sat down. And at the end of service, one of the holy rollers comes up to me and I'm like, oh God. <laughs> she says, Lydia, I just want you to know something. I had my first child out of wedlock and it was really hard for me but you know what? God had my back and he has yours. You're gonna be okay. You're stronger than you think. And then another lady, another one from the Holy Roller crew, she told me all three of her kids she wasn't married. And she said that she can't imagine how it is for me to have to deal with it as a, as a, as a PK. And that she's there for me if I ever need to talk to somebody, that she's there. Another lady came up to me and she hugged me and while hugging me and tears streaming down her face, tears coming down my face, she said, Lydia, I've watched you grow from a, from a little girl to this fierce young lady that you are today. I would have never been able to stand up here and tell my sins to the congregation. You are going to be a shining example and your testimony is going to heal and help so many other young women who will go through the same thing as you. And of course, there were the naysayers, Bishop Caesar can't even control his own family, blah, blah, blah. But it came back to me what my dad had taught me my whole life, was that those people who are talking and saying all this negativity, those people are probably super religious. They probably don't have a relationship with God. The people who opened their arms to me and were there for me, those are the ones with a real relationship. And my church family, I learned something else about them that day, that they were exactly that my family, and they helped me raise a daughter that I did not think I was strong enough to have. Thank you. That was Lydia Caesar. Lydia is a singer-songwriter, originally from Queens, New York, who performs all over the country. This is her singing now. I send you messages you don't answer, ignore my calls, do you even care at all? I feel more alone, the closer we get, it's uncomfortable. It's like you know that I ain't going nowhere. Time Lydia now lives in St. Louis, Missouri. She's married, and her daughter, the one she talks about in this story, is now 16. Lydia says she is her best friend. 
You can find out more about Lydia at themoth.org. Coming up, more stories on our theme, I Got You, when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison, and we're hearing stories of times someone has our back or when we stand up for others. Our next story is from Adam Ellick. Adam told this at a Grand Slam in New York City, which is supported by public radio station WNYC. Here's Adam, live at the Music Hall of Williamsburg. When my father was dying of cancer, he called me into the living room. Beside him was my 77-year-old grandpa, Marty. And he said, no matter what happens to me, always take care of Marty. I was 21, so of course I agreed. What kind of monster wouldn't? But I didn't love Marty. Marty was a raunchy, offensive little fella. Massive gut, spindly little chicken legs, and when he spoke, it was an offensive comment about a woman, or he was railing against a relative who didn't pick up a lunch bill seven years ago. (laughs) Marty was born to dirt-poor Jewish immigrant parents. Thirteen kids shared an outhouse. And when Marty was 16, he was forced to quit school to work in a butcher shop. Marty was obsessed with money. His goal was to never be poor again. And he eventually bought that butcher shop in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood. Everyone there said, Marty has the best burgers in town. And he did, because he laced the meat with a cheaper type of meat called pork. (laughs) My grandfather. We didn't have much of a relationship growing up. When he was in the meat shop, I was fulfilling my narrow view of success. I was accumulating degrees and becoming a journalist, and I was dating girls who work at think tanks. (laughs) And now I was stuck with this oath from my father to take care of a man I didn't love, but I wasn't gonna let my dad down. After my dad died for the first few months, I'd call Marty once a month and I would check in with him. The calls were awkward. We were just going through the motions. And then one day I got a call that Marty's in the ICU. I went there and we probably both thought this was the end because when I got there, he finally had a real and raw conversation with me. He told me that he was still haunted by memories of what he saw liberating the Dachau concentration camp. He told me about losing his virginity to a French woman during the war, and he told me what we all knew, which is he still felt felt guilty for being an absent workaholic parent. He survived, and then I started calling him every day on my way to work. I just wanted to inject a little bit of happiness into his lonely life, and he soon declared those calls the highlight of his day. I was just listening. He revealed to me why his business went bankrupt at 75. It turns out one of his own sons stole all the money from the meat shop, and Marty was still heartbroken. I was just listening. Sometimes we forget about our amazing power to just listen someone back to life. Now, I'll spare you the details, but as Marty got into his 80s, he was sicker and sicker. Every time, three or four times, ICU, surgery, We'd call the funeral home and the sucker would come right back. (laughs) Then I had to start going every month to Delaware to visit him. And on those car rides, I was kind of hating myself. You should be writing a book or going on dates. But he needed things and I had to take care of him. And when I got there, we had so much fun because this 
broke guy was freeing himself of all his resentment. The womanizer now had a female fan club. We went to his favorite frozen yogurt store and the girls came around the corner and kissed his cheek and they're like, he's our unofficial grandfather. <laughs> I was kind of jealous of both sides. The nurses in the rehab center would come visit him on his day off to hear his stupid jokes. During grad school, I brought a friend to visit him from Armenia. We walked in the door and he said, everyone else goes to get laid on spring break and this schmuck goes to visit his grandfather. <laughs> Marty and I are both a bit abrasive and grouchy and I feel like we created this space together that was like a place and a vulnerability and a sweetness that we never wanted to show to other people. I saw us as two single guys. We shop alone for groceries and we sleep in empty beds. Marty had two failed marriages and I've had a mess of a love life. And I feel like being together during those visits was our way of processing together our loneliness. The last time Marty went into the hospital was for hernia surgery and the doctor said, don't do it, it's way too dangerous. At this point, Marty had a pacemaker and a feeding tube and a catheter and a colostomy bag and it was no life and he said, let's do the surgery. He called it suicide by surgery. <laughs> Just before they wheel, wheeled him into the operating room, I was at his bedside he was unconscious, and I was bawling. And I was trying to decide if I want this man to survive or to die. I thought back, I panicked, I thought back to that pledge I made my dad. I was supposed to take care of him and make him live. But there was nothing left. The doctor came to console me by my side. She was a gorgeous Russian cardiologist. <laughs> And she said, you know, just before he closed his eyes, he told me, are you still single? <laughs> I apologized to her in the midst of my tears and I said, I'm sorry, please don't even tell me what else he said. I can't even imagine. And she said, he told me that if he survives, he's gonna introduce me to a schmuck who has the warmest heart in the world. This whole thing started with me being terrified about taking care of someone who I didn't even love. And as he wheeled away, I realized that now I'm terrified to let go of someone who I truly loved. Thank you. Adam Ellick is a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy-winning video journalist with the New York Times. He's been attending New York Story Slam since 2005. The first story he told won the Story Slam, which brought him to the Grand Slam, where he told this story about Marty. Adam wrote us and said, Marty actually survived that surgery. He woke up infuriated that it didn't knock him off, but he got an infection a few weeks after and was promptly dead as he hoped. End quote. Adam made a documentary about Marty and his life, but they made a deal that no one in the family is allowed to see it until 10 years after he died. So they can watch the movie in 2028. Up next, another New York City slammer, Craig Mangum. Craig told this story at a slam at the Housing Works bookstore. Just to let you know, this story makes some references to human sexuality. Here's Craig Mangum. So, um, I grew up in an Orthodox Mormon family, but I grew up outside of the state of Utah, which means I spent most of my childhood explaining to my friends the rules of being Mormon, like why I couldn't watch an R-rated movie, why I couldn't play sports on Sunday, why I had one mom instead of three. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there was an end to this in sight, and that was the day that I would apply to Brigham Young University, which in my mind was this like blessed holy land where the best and brightest of my religion would gather together to receive our college educations in a wholesome environment fueled with faith. And so when the day arrived for me to fill out my application, thank you, 
Uh, I did so very excitedly, and I signed every piece of paper they sent me, including the BYU Honor Code, which is a legal document between the student and the university in which you agree to live the, an orthodox Mormon lifestyle for the duration of your education. Now, I signed that knowing at the time that I was gay, and I signed that knowing that if I were to come out, I could be expelled from the university, lose my education, and potentially excommunicate it from the Mormon faith but I had a lot of hope. I hoped that the stories I had been taught as a child would be strong enough to protect me from a future I had been taught to fear. And so I went and uh, I was very excited to go. Now I could tell you at this point horror stories about uh, how mentally and emotionally abusive it was to attend college there. But today, instead, I want to tell you a story of something good that happened. And that was someone I met whose name was Charles Swift. Now, uh, as the Book of Mormon musical teaches us, uh, the happiest day of a Mormon boy's life is his mission. And this is very true at BYU, where at the end of your freshman year, everyone is uh, pressured and encouraged to serve for two years as a Mormon missionary. You apply, you are sent somewhere in the world, you do not pick, and you teach people about Mormonism. Uh, now, in order to qualify to be a missionary, you go through a process called interviewing in which you meet one-on-one -on -one with a Mormon religious leader who ascertains your spiritual preparedness and worthiness to represent the church as a missionary. Now, Charles Swift was the Mormon bishop who I met with as I went through that process. A bishop is a Mormon equivalent of a priest or pastor. And now in the context of these interviews, they really can ask you anything about your behavior. There is a set list of questions, but they can go off script. And I had heard that they will occasionally ask you if you are gay, or how they put it, if you have homosexual thoughts. So you can imagine my fear as I went into this interview with Bishop Swift. I had not told anyone I was gay, and he did indeed ask me, Craig, do you have homosexual thoughts? Um, now, in this context, I believed this man represented God, and I did not want to lie to God, and so I said, yes, I do. Now, in this moment, Charles Swift could have answered as many Mormon kids here, which is, it is a sin. You must resist it your entire life, or you will go to hell. You will not be with your family in the next life. But to his credit, he didn't say that. He said, uh, Craig, Sexuality exists on a spectrum, and where you fall is something very personal to you. But if you haven't done anything, you are able to be a missionary. Do you want to be a missionary? And of course I did. I had been raised to want to be a missionary, and so I said yes. He said, Craig, now know this. God is much bigger than the boxes we try to put him in. And I kept that in my mind. I kept that in my mind as I was sent to be a missionary in Bolivia and Peru. I lived there for two years, and it's a whole other story. Then I came back, and I had four like, of the best months of my life. My family was so proud of me. I had done like, everything they had ever wanted. And I did what all good Mormon boys do, which is date a lot, try to find someone to marry, and start your own happy little Mormon family. And I remember sitting on a date with a beautiful woman and just suddenly becoming so aware of how false it all felt, and how fake I felt, and I felt I was lying. And in that moment, uh, this world that I had tried to build for myself over 23 years uh, just began to fall apart. But I couldn't tell anyone, right? I'm at BYU. I had signed this contract. I couldn't come out. I could lose it all. And so I went to the one place of refuge I had only known, which was Bishop Swift. So I scheduled a time with him in his office hours, and we were catching up, and he, he says to me, now, Craig, I don't remember everything that people tell me in those interviews. I literally had 300 BYU students confessing that they were addicted to masturbation. I just don't remember it all. Um, <laughs> and he said, but you, you were my friend, and I remember what we talked about. How are you? And I just started to cry as I told him what it felt like to lose your identity, your religion, your family. Um, and he just listened, and he was just very present with me. And he said, Craig, um, you're always welcome to come and talk to me about this, but there are people much more qualified to see you through this transition in your life. And with me there, he called a friend of his who was a therapist and set me up with my first appointment. And with that therapist, I was able to navigate the coming out process. I was able to lose one identity that was harming me and gain and find one, a new one. 
And in that moment, I say Charles Swift saved my life. Uh, in a religion that claimed to be able to save my soul, he saved my life by giving me tools to save myself. In November of 2015, the leadership of the Mormon Church announced a policy in which all LGBT members of the church were labeled apostates. And the children of those members, of those LGBT members, were barred from baptism until they were 18 years old, had left their family's home, and forsaken their family's lifestyle. In the wake of that policy, 35 LGBT Mormons, ages 14 to 20, committed suicide. 27 of them were, uh, excuse me, 27 of those were within the state of Utah, and the average age was 17. So when I say he saved my life, I'm not exaggerating. And there are days I am so angry at Mormonism's inability to care for its gay people that I can't, it's hard to get out of bed. And in those moments, I remember Charles Swift. And I pause to think that the religion that I am so mad at is the religion that helped him know how to help me in my moment of need. And that is when I remember always what he told me, that God is so much bigger than the boxes we put him in. And Mormonism was just a box. Thank you. That was Craig Mangum. Craig is a writer and graphic designer based in Brooklyn. He's a former president of the Out Foundation, a philanthropic network for the LGBTQ plus alumni of BYU. And he's currently writing a memoir about discovering the private lives of three generations of the gay Mormon uncles that preceded him. You can find out more at themoth.org. Also at our website, you can share these stories or others from the Moth Archive. And you can find us on social media, too. We're on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth. If these slam stories inspire you to tell one of your own, Throw your name in the digital hat at one of our virtual open mic story slam competitions. To find one in your city and check out the upcoming themes, visit themoth.org. Coming up, our last story, an earthquake and unexpected solidarity when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. Our final story this hour is from Elif Shafak. Elif is a novelist. Her story is about blocking out the world in order to do your work. But the world has a way of asserting itself when you're trying to escape it. From the Cooper Union in New York City, here's Elif Shafak. So years ago, I used to live in Istanbul on a street called Kazanji. I was writing my new novel here, writing and sulking. I was walking a thin line between creating a book and destroying myself. The street was quite narrow and so steep that whenever it rained more than three inches, all the water that would accumulate up the hill would come down in a crazy gush. On such days, it was a river more than a street, and we, the residents, were like passengers on a boat. I could not help but think that one could not settle down here for too long, but only sojourn for a while. And interestingly, the history of the street seemed to confirm this, 
Once this place had been a cosmopolitan hub of cultures and religions, Jews, Greeks, Armenians, Levantines, and Muslims of every sect had lived here side by side. Over the years, not feeling at home anymore, most of the non-Muslim population had left, but a few of them had stayed. And then in early 1970s, an entirely different cluster of people had moved in, transsexuals and also prostitutes. They had built a life here until they were driven out by the local authorities, but a few of them had remained. And this is where I was in the summer of 1999, writing a novel called The Gaze. The story was so different than anything I had imagined before, and far more surreal. But all of a sudden, I had hit a snag with the plot, and the characters had rebelled against me. Even the side characters were now not taking me seriously anymore. <laughs> Naturally, I was depressed. The novel was sucking me in, little by little. And from then on, I had only two choices in front of me. I would either put the book aside and take refuge in the real world, or I would put the real world aside and plunge deeper into the story and write everything all over again. And I chose the latter. I decided neither to leave my flat nor to let anyone in until I had finished the first draft. Now, my flat was very tiny. It had one bedroom and a kitchen with ceilings so low that if you were to make pancakes, for instance, you could not possibly toss them up in the air. <laughs> the bathroom was so narrow that when you took a shower, the steam would turn into a fog that wouldn't dissolve for hours. However, in one corner of the living room, if you put a stool in front of the window and you stepped on it and you craned your head in the right direction, you could, on a bright sunny day, you could see the sea. You could see the boats sailing across the Bosphorus. So it was a flat with a view, as this, <laughs> as this real estate agent had once told me. And this is where I decided to quarantine myself for an indeterminate period. Now, at this stage, I should probably tell you that I'm a rather restless person. Even when we go to a restaurant, I need to change seats a few times during the course of the dinner. And I don't like silence, and I usually write my books outside in noisy, crowded cafes, train stations, airports, always on the move. So for me, the decision to confine myself in this little space was a big decision and totally, totally out of character. Nonetheless, I was determined. I called my mother, my close friends, and my boyfriend, and I told them, as calmly and as confidently as I could manage, that I would not be reachable for the next days, weeks, perhaps months. They asked me if I had lost my mind, and I said, look, everything is okay, but I need to make the sacrifice for my art. And I told them not to call me unless I called them first. My mother started to cry, and, <laughs> and she told me to get married and have kids <laughs> and, and live a normal life. I said, I said I didn't have time for that. I had a book to finish, for God's sake. Um, now, to their credit, they all respected my decision and agreed not to call, not to come, not to even send a postcard. Thus satisfied, I unplugged the phone, pulled the curtains, and turned the radio up. That summer, this, my favorite rock station used to play Santana at least 10 times a day, particularly this song, Corazón Espinado, Pierced Heart. And that became my personal anthem in this sublime endeavor. But I wasn't totally alone. I had a smoky gray cat that was named Smokey. <laughs> she curled up, curled up on my desk and watched me carefully, eyes narrowed to slits, as if she knew things that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and in this state, I began to write the book from the very beginning. Now, the first day went very well. I was quite productive and elated. The second day, not bad, though by the end of the third day, I was having migraines and panic attacks, and the need to go out for a walk was overwhelming. 
By the end of the first week, I had finished 75 pages, as well as all the food in the fridge, which wasn't a lot to begin with. And now I was feeding on salty pretzels and sunflower seeds, which I was okay with, really, as long as I had water and coffee, I was fine. But being a fussier creature, my cat was starving. <laughs> Across from the house, there was a little grocery store. The owner was a grumpy man who never talked to marginals and refused to sell alcohol or any newspapers or magazines that he suspected of being even slightly, slightly liberal. Every day when he went to mosque, he, he would put a huge sign on his door as if he wanted the whole world to see where he was. So unlike his wife, who seemed privately spiritual to me, this man was publicly religious. Now, as I said, there was no food left in the kitchen. My cat was desperate, but I had made an oath. And also by now, I had the psychology of a vampire. I dreaded daylight. I had not, I had not taken a bath in like 10 days. My hair had changed color. It was all oily and all tangled. But most importantly, I didn't want to break my promise just to go to the conservative grocer across the street. So nowadays, of course, it's so easy. You know, we have the, we have the internet and everything. We can, we can do shopping without going anywhere. But back then, the people of Istanbul had found other techniques to, you know, for this purpose. As those of you who might have been in the city um, would have realized, there are lots of apartment blocks there that have little shops at the entrance level. So what happens is, the people living on upper floors they usually take a basket, tie a string to it, and lower it down. And the shopkeeper puts the required items inside, then you just pull it up. So a lot of shopping, a substantial amount of shopping in the city is done in this way. The problem was, my grocer's, um, grocery store wasn't situated at the entrance of my building. It was across the street. So here's what I did. I asked help from the old lady, from, the Greek, from my Greek neighbor across the street. Um, she was in the opposite building, and together we extended a laundry line between our windows. I sent her a basket, which she then lowered down. And through this complicated mechanism, I was able to reach the grumpy grocer with a note that said, bread, brown please, cheese, feta please, cat food with tuna, please, and a pack of beer, please. <laughs> and it worked seamlessly, you know, the basket came back to me, everything was in it except the beer. No problem, my spirits raised. Um, I renewed my oath never to go out until I had finished my book. That night at three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and the whole world was shaking. The walls, the ceiling, and the floor. Having no experience before with earthquakes, I was caught totally unprepared, like millions of others. I grabbed my manuscript, my cat, in that order, and I ran out of the building. That night, my Greek neighbor, the conservative grocer, and his head-scarved wife, me and Smokey, we spent the night together. My cat was extremely nervous, as if she knew that more than 8,000 people had lost their lives. Later on, as we listened to the radio together and realized the magnitude of the tragedy, I looked at the manuscript in my hands, you know? All of a sudden it seemed so small, so trivial. What difference did it make whether I finished this chapter, whether I found the twist in the plot? Tonight, in the face of death, we were all temporary brothers and temporary sisters. But tomorrow, everybody would go their own way and the old pre same prejudices would re-emerge. I was sure that Kazanji Street would be back to normal, but I wasn't that sure that I could go back to my novel. It wasn't a writer's block exactly, it was, it was something like a loss of faith, which I'd never known before, and which was deeper, darker, and more sinister. To me, to this day, this is one of the toughest dilemmas in my work, to have the faith, to have the belief, that stories matter, that words make a difference and connect us across the boundaries, and the sneaky suspicion that all art is in vain 
in the face of larger, darker world events. And between this optimism and pessimism, my heart is a pendulum. It goes back and forth, back and forth. In the weeks ahead, I joined the volunteers who were helping earthquake survivors by collecting blankets and food and so on. By the end of the summer, I was back in my flat again, writing again. And suddenly, through the open window, I heard a thud. Someone had sent a basket to me across the laundry line, and in it, there were two cans of beer. <laughs> I, I glanced at the opposite, window, uh, the opposite building to thank my, my Greek neighbor, thinking it was her, but to my surprise, it was not. It was the conservative grocer who had sent them. He waved at me, a tired smile on his face. I waved back. And I understood that of the experience we had shared, something had remained. And perhaps at the end of the day, this is what we writers want to achieve with our stories, something to remain, a spontaneous bonding, a speck of empathy, and also the possibility of change. Thank you. Elif Shafak is an award-winning Turkish-British novelist and the most widely-read female author in Turkey. She has written 17 books. Her latest is 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, nominated for the Booker Prize. Elif is also a political scientist, a women's rights and LGBTQ rights activist, and a twice-TED Global speaker. Do you happen to have a story of a time you were surprised when someone had your back or didn't, or when you stood up for someone you never expected to? Tell us about it. You can pitch us your story by recording it right on our site, themoth.org, or by calling 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. The best pitches are developed for Moth shows all around the world. Name is Deb Kelf. I live in the inner city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I traveled out uh, west alone in an Altima about three years ago, and I wanted to go through the town of Ten Sleep, Wyoming. It's a population of 300, some beautiful scenery there. And I read up in a moon travel log that there was a great little off-road drive to a place called Castle Gardens. Don't go down that dirt road if there's any impending rain coming your way. Well, the road was dry when I went on. And the storm blew in. I quick, it was about seven miles in on the dirt road. I quick packed up what I'd taken out of the car, went to come back out and discovered that I was traveling on a clay base called bentonite, which they sell as a facial product. I could not go up to one of the world's smallest little hills. I could not get the tires to grip that clay. Eventually, I pulled over. My phone miraculously worked. I was supposed to have uh, emergency help uh, insurance, and they told me that, indeed, I was too far off-road, and therefore, I would have to pay for a tow truck that was 50 miles away. I walked out over Cattle Guard, out to the road. The sun was starting to set. And uh, this population of 300, I knew it was going to be grim. So I put my thumb out when a truck went by, it went by. Put my thumb out again when another vehicle showed up, they went by. The third truck, I put my hands up like the YMCA signal, like, woo. And they pulled over. It turned out to be a couple who lived in Ten Sleep. They knew I was going to have difficulty getting a room at the only hotel there. And they put me up at their place. For one night, uh, fed me, uh, drove me back out to my car when the road eventually dried up. They gave me shelter and food, and they even washed my car off the next day with a garden hose to get that clay off. Okay, I think that's probably it, right? Bye. Remember, you can pitch us at 877-799-MOTH or online at themoth.org, where you can also share these stories or others from the Moth Archive. 
That's it for this episode. Here at The Moth, as Alif Shafak said in her story, we hope that from our stories, something will remain. A spontaneous bonding, a speck of empathy, and also the possibility of change. Please join us next time. And that's the story from The Moth. in this show were directed by Sarah Austin Jeunesse, Jennifer Hickson, and Michelle Jalowski. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Emily Couch. Moss stories are true, as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Lydia Caesar, Brad Meldow, Oscar Schuster, Bruce Coburn, and Santana. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, The Moth. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.